The Lifestylist, episode 149, featuring Dr. William Davis. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast has been made possible in part by my friends over at Athletic Greens. I discovered this superfood blend a couple months ago, started taking it, fell in love with it, found it to be really convenient and useful and really good for the listeners because it's so all-encompassing. It's got vitamins, minerals, raw alkaline superfoods, herbs, antioxidants, plus enzymes and probiotics. So it's really a complete superfood blend. So that's why I like it. But in order to take an advertiser on the show, I need to find out a little more. I have to do a little deep digging. And you should rest assured that I do this with all my advertisers. I got on the phone with their CEO. I asked him about testing for heavy metals, for mold, uh, herb or irradiation, all this weird stuff that you probably don't know about that a lot of health supplements companies do that is not awesome. So this passed my test, passed the taste test, passed the power test and convenience test. And that's why I'm so happy to share with you Athletic Greens. So if you want to check this out, here's what's up. You want to go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke. You're going to find a landing page there. And when you purchase through that page, you're going to get 20 free travel packs valued at 99 bucks. Pretty awesome. So go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast, along with many others, is brought to you by my friends over at Organifi. And today, the product I'd like to talk about is Organifi Gold, and it gets a serious gold medal. The purpose of this particular product is to soothe you and to help you recover and relax. So I typically do this one at night in a hot drink, which I'll tell you about, although you can do it on ice during the daytime. It's kind of an all-in-one deal. But the core ingredient of the gold is turmeric, and it's an anti-inflammatory spice. It's one of my favorites. I use it all the time. It's got actually over 8,000 published studies and articles showing its numerous health benefits. So I'll make myself a nice fatty little golden latte to wind the night down It's also a way that I cheat and trick my friends into thinking I'm a really good chef because I make this amazing drink. But literally all there is is hot water and Organifi Gold and some ghee or coconut oil and it tastes amazing because it's got uh, coconut milk and cinnamon and ginger and lemon balm and a couple medicinal mushrooms. So it's a really warm, relaxing beverage and it's clinically proven to reduce stress. So that's what I like to do at night. That's Organifi Gold and you can mix it into all kinds of drinks and smoothies and make ice cream out of it everything. It's just totally badass. And more than anything, I mean, it's good for you and all that, of course, but it's just super, super delicious. I love this stuff. I live on it. Okay. So go to Organifi.com slash Luke. That's Organifi with an I, Organifi.com forward slash Luke. And if you use the code lifestylist, you'll save 20% off on your little bucket of gold. That's Organifi.com forward slash Luke, 20% off with lifestylist. 
What's happening? What's cracking? What's going on? It's Luke Story from LukeStory.com bringing you another episode of the Lifestylist podcast. Today's episode features Dr. William Davis, where we're talking about the toxic truth of wheat and gluten. Sorry, folks, I'm about to burst your bubble if you think you can get away with it and still be healthy. (laughs) The the gluten-free thing turns out, unfortunately for all of us, yours truly included, is not hype. There's science behind it, and we're going to get into that. But first, let's talk about this Friday's bonus episode. It's a special report called Speed Healing, Turbocharged Body Work with Rapid Release. We're going to talk about how you can alleviate the pains in your body. Very cool device, very cool tool. I use mine literally every day. We're going to talk about that and the people behind it on Friday's bonus show. Then next Tuesday, we've got Justin Mars from Kettle and Fire, where we're going to take a deep dive, no pun intended, because it sounds gross to dive into bone broth, but we're going to be talking about bone broth, keto, and other ancient trends. So if you don't want to miss the upcoming episodes or any episodes that are going to be coming down the pike, you definitely want to subscribe. So right now, literally right now, this is what we call in the business of marketing, a call to action. This is my call to action. Reach down in your device or your computer, wherever my voice is coming from, and click subscribe on this podcast. That way, you don't have to remember to check in. Uh, My voice and my shows will just magically come from outer space and be downloaded to your device every Tuesday. And sometimes, as is the case this Friday, you'll get a bonus episode here and there. Pretty good stuff. A couple upcoming events. I've got One Taste in Venice on July 26th at 6.30 p.m., Then I'll be at Next Health in Century City, August 22nd, 8.30 p.m. And then I'll be the next night, August 23rd at OsteoStrong, one of my favorite places to biohack out in West LA. So it's going to be a a busy month in August, it looks like, and uh, one just coming up here shortly on July 26th. Okay, on to this episode. Without further ado, this one was another uh, recording that I did backstage at the Longevity Now conference in Anaheim. You might have heard... My Longevity Now All-Stars episode or Kyle Cease, which were also recorded in the same little magical room. It was kind of my, my recording studio and I got a lot done in there. I was very prolific when it came to the recording. It's a great event. You should check it out uh, next, night, next time it comes into town, presuming that will be the Women's Wellness Conference and then Longevity Now in 2019. Very cool event with really rad guests. Dr. William Davis being no exception. Now, Dr. William Davis was one of my top guest goals when I first started the podcast a little over two years ago. He was on my list because I wanted to get to the bottom of this whole gluten thing, and he's most famous for doing a book called Wheat Belly. So in this conversation, we went into great detail about the dangers not only of gluten, but of all grains. And uh, Dr. Davis was just a really cool down-to-earth guy. I mean, he rolled with my wacky interview style and we just had a great time. He's a very cool dude, really smart, very scientific, but at the same time, just a normal guy that could shoot the shit about why gluten is whack. So I got to the bottom of this gluten-free hype and uh, I really wanted to find out if there's any way I could sneak bread into my diet and not feel like garbage. And unfortunately... Uh, For me, the answer was probably a no. Yeah, that's going to be a no. But you're going to learn exactly why in the interview. So Dr. William Davis, who's this guy? He's a cardiologist and he's one of the world's foremost experts on wheat and gluten. He's the author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, Wheat Belly, 
author of a new book called Undoctored, Why Healthcare Has Failed You and How You Can Become Smarter Than Your Doctor. And I'll just say that in this uh, episode, we actually talk about a lot more other than gluten. It's sort of just the whole conspiracy of Western medicine and how it's tied in with big pharma and big agriculture and how so many forces are working against us and our health. So please listen to the whole thing. If you heard the intro and you're like, ah, gluten's fine with me, it doesn't bother me, I can eat grains all day long. Maybe you can, I'm not telling you not to. It's not my job, but it's my job to report different points of view. And um, Dr. William Davis is not some kook. I mean, he's a real MD, a real cardiologist, highly educated, highly intelligent. And uh, he's really a courageous guy to kind of come out and talk about some of the flaws in the allopathic Western medicine model. So there's a lot more to this episode than meets the eye. Here's some of the things we talk about. Why modern frankenwheat is even more harmful than the grains of the past. The lies we're told about animal fats. How indifference to people's health and the love of money has corrupted healthcare. And why the real solutions to your health will come from people like you, the listener, and me, the host, and not the healthcare system. Why just two slices of whole wheat bread is worse for you than six teaspoons of table sugar. Dude, trippy stuff. I mean, there's science to back it up. That's the scary part. Then how our reliance on grains has inadvertently created a nation of addiction and how big pharma is taking advantage of that fact. Why many gluten-free foods are actually worse for you and why the gluten alternatives are not healthy. What happens to your body when you eat grains or gluten on a you know a metabolic scientific level? Like what is the reaction that's caused, which is really interesting stuff. And then finally, why no human society in history has ever thrived or even survived or attempted in a long-term way a vegan diet. Very interesting um, factoid there. Interesting perspective he has on that. However, Before we jump into this interview, I have one special request for you guys. And if you're a regular listener to the show, I would so much appreciate it if you could do this. If you're new to the show and you're like, I don't know if I like this dude's show yet, just chill. The interview's coming. But if you listen to the show and you're like, wow, this is awesome. I love this free content coming at me every week. I'm learning so much. It's helping me, which um, seems to be the case based on the feedback I get on all of my social media platforms and my email form on my website. Here's what I would love for you to do. And I'm literally begging you. I don't want to be pathetic, but it would really, 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 really help me if you could leave a rating and review in iTunes. Now that got so much easier if you're listening on the Apple iTunes app. So if you have an iPhone and you're listening to the regular uh, podcast app, then you can just click uh, down on the bottom there. I think it's on the right hand side and it says leave a review. And it's a super simple process. You rate the show, hopefully with five stars, obviously, and then leave a short review on what you like about the show. This is a great way to support the mission over here at The Lifestylist. If that's confusing to you for any reason, or you're not on your phone and have access to the player, you can always do this. Go to lukestory.com forward slash how to iTunes review. I'm not even kidding. I made a landing page that has a step-by-step tutorial on how to leave a review. That's how important it is to me. So go to lukestory.com forward slash how to iTunes review. And now that we've got that out of the way, it is with great sadness that I say goodbye to gluten and with reluctant gratitude that I welcome our esteemed guest, Dr. William Davis. 
Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you. Yeah, man. Glad to be here. I'm really glad to catch you. This is my second time recording at the Longevity Now conference. And uh, I had a target list of some of the big, you know, headliner speakers that I wanted to get a hold of. And I was really happy to meet you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down. Oh, you're happy to. Yeah. And it's also timely because I've been largely gluten-free for oh, probably the past six years. And I'll, I'll have what I call a little cheat here and there. And I seem to be able to get away with it. But the last time I did it was uh, I had a total full-blown relapse on a cronut and a cinnamon roll. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just the worst, like white flour, white sugar, just crack food. And the craving just got me. I was at, I was at the Grove in LA and uh, there's this very famous chef, I forget his name, who invented the cronut. He opened a shop there. There's always a long line. And I'm just, I walk by like a freaking alcoholic in front of a liquor store. And uh, I was like, ah, what the hell? It'll be okay. Thought I was fine for about 24 hours. I was like, wow, I'm okay. And then 24 hours later, and for the past week, so begins the heartburn, the digestion problems, uh, aches in my body. And I'm not even celiac. But it definitely was not my friend. So I'm really excited right now at this particular point in time to dig in with one of the world's foremost experts on wheat and gluten and this whole thing. So what prompted you in the first place as a cardiologist to begin to look at wheat? What were the first sort of um, clues that you had that that could be at the root of some of your patients' problems? Luke, I wish I could tell you it was a flash of brilliance, but it was not. It was stumbling and bumbling around because one of the things I did way back, this is my years of working as an interventional cardiologist. This is the, I was the guy who put in stents and did angioplasty, stop heart attacks, those kinds of things. Well, my mom died of sudden cardiac death just a few months after her successful coronary angioplasty. And that really drove home to me that there was something fundamentally wrong with expecting people to get heart health from a procedure lab, from a hospital, from a, from a device. And so... Uh, one of the things I did is back more than 20 years ago now. How old was your mom? Uh, late 60s. Oh, wow. Way too early. To so pass. young for a woman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it drove home to me how helpless you can be if uh, you're not near a hospital, if you have no idea you have heart disease. So back then, there was a new device in the market called an electron beam tomography device. And it was a means of scanning people to quantify how much coronary plaque, coronary atherosclerosis you had. So I assembled all the people and we got this new device where I was at the time in Milwaukee. And there was just a few dozen of these devices uh, nationwide and worldwide. So we were kind of in the frontier of all this. We started scanning thousands of people in the area. And lo and behold, all these healthy people who said, I just, you know, my dad had a heart attack at age 57. I'm 50. I want to know if I have heart disease. I, I run. I, I eat low fat. I, I feel great. And he's got heart disease, hidden heart disease. And so what do you do? Nice business guy's got a heart scan score. Normal is zero. Score of zero is normal. His score is say 600 or 700. He's freaking out. Back then they'd ask, what do I do? Back then I'd say, well, take Lipitor or Zocor and aspirin and cut your fat and exercise more. He'd come oh, back. <laughs> this is 20 some years ago. Right, right. He'd come back a year later. His score would be 800, 830 about a 30% increase in score year over year. We helped publish some of those data. And people are really going nuts now. It also became clear, and these data were published, that conventional answers like statin drugs and cut your fat had virtually no impact whatsoever. They are an absolute failure. 
So the consensus opinion nationwide, not my opinion, was that, well, just don't scan people again. This was actually said. Wait till they have chest pain or symptoms of heart disease or a heart attack, then deal with it. Wow. In other words, essentially ignore <laughs> this growing, this looming problem called growing heart disease and ignore it. Wait till somebody needs a procedure. Should they survive to the hospital? That was That is the dismal, horrible, and to me, unacceptable answer to what to do. So what do you do when... None of the so-called experts had any answers. They'd say stupid things like um, more statin drugs, more low fat, those kinds. So I set out to find better answers. It took a number of years of really stumbling around and adding things and see if they worked in hundreds of people. One of the biggest effects, by the way, was vitamin D. This was in Milwaukee where we're kind of very sun deprived and it's cold. So people wear clothes <laughs> most of the right, year. Right. And if you give that population as well as other populations, but it's a little more exaggerated in the Midwest or upper northern latitudes, you give these people vitamin D. It was the first time, Luke, it was the first time I saw scores not just stop going up, but actually drop. Wow. And not wow. a little bit, not 3%, not 4%. I'm talking about 36%, 48%, 72%, 84%. Dramatic reversal of coronary plaque. So vitamin D became an important component. Fish oil was iodine and normalization or optimization of thyroid status. Was Any important. relation there with vitamin K2? Yeah, K2 is a player here, but... I've never seen any incremental value in uh, helping stop or reduce heart scan score. So there's a lot of uncertainties about K2. My, my, uh, uh, my suspicion with K2 is that it's really this apparent need and benefit from K2 is really just an expression of dysbiosis or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Uh, okay. <clears throat> I think. Okay. In the meantime, it's very uh, benign and harmless. It just costs a few bucks. It takes say, yeah. an MK7 form of K2. Yeah. If you look at these people and don't do something silly like cholesterol testing. Oh, God. I forgot to put that in my notes. We've got to definitely cover that. Because I get a lot of heat from people like, oh, you eat all this ghee and butter. Like, what about the cholesterol? I'm like, oh, God, you don't get it. But I don't get it either. I just know, wow, I feel really good. And my labs are all looking good. I'm very healthy. So whatever I'm doing, with, I'm eating tons of cholesterol every day and I'm, I feel amazing. Anyway, carry on. Cholesterol testing, Luke, is this beat up old 57 Chevy with okay. rust up and down the sides and flat tires. It's, it's outdated and it's virtually useless, but it persists because there's a big pot of gold for big pharma in the form of statin drugs and now some of these other drugs. We, we all knew in the 50s and 60s that cholesterol was not the cause of heart disease. It's nothing more than a crude marker, like a dipstick in your crankcase to mm -hmm. see how much oil's in there. But your engine doesn't run on a dipstick. It's just a, it's just a device for measurement. Cholesterol is a device for measurement. It's all it was. But that led to this idea that cholesterol was the cause. And cholesterol is not the cause of heart disease. It's nothing more than a marker. And after all, you and I are made of cholesterol. We are packed top to, head to toe with cholesterol. And isn't cholesterol like a precursor to hormones? And it's a precursor to many hormones okay. and other factors <laughs> in the body. So, it's so if we were to totally, just let's just say we're going to be crazy and go out on a limb, we totally eliminate, okay, cholesterol is bad for you. Just let's just ban all cholesterol. I mean, effectively, our health would just go to hell pretty quickly then, right? Yes. You, I mean, it's the low fat movement of the 1980s, you know, and everyone, oh, cholesterol, fat's bad for you. Fat makes you fat. I think a lot of us are waking up now, but there are still people in the dark ages in terms of that. Yes, because it's very profitable to be wrong. 
That's right. one of the great tragedies of big pharma and what they've done to healthcare. But uh, there is a, a higher level test. It's called lipoprotein analysis. It's nothing more than dissecting out the particles in the bloodstream that actually cause heart disease, but they also give you tremendous insight into metabolism, into the way you process foods, and the effects foods have on these various uh, uh, particles in your bloodstream. When you do that, which I've been doing for 20 years, it becomes immediately obvious that consuming dietary cholesterol or fat has virtually no effect at all on the particles in the bloodstream. But eating carbohydrates has a dramatic effect. And one of the effects is, is formation of what's called small LDL particles, not LDL cholesterol being a marker for LDL particles, but actually small oxidation-prone LDL particles. And these blow up. They explode when you eat carbohydrates. So I asked myself years ago, I said, well, what carbohydrate dominates the diets of most people? It's not quinoa. It's not triticale. It's not sorghum. It's, it's wheat. So I, I asked people, let's remove the wheat from your diet. And they were kind of confused by that, but I gave them a little handout on how to do that. And they did it. They'd come back and there's small LDL. On a lipoprotein analysis, you'll see values like this. They start at 2,000 or 2,400 nanomoles per liter. It's a particle count per volume. They'd go wheat-free, and I also went, had them go sugar-free. And small LDL dropped from 2,000 or 2,400, 2,800 to zero. Wow. Or some other very low value. Ir irrespective of whatever, however much little or much fat they're eating. Right. So the fat, fat is not even like in the equation not at this even point. On the, wow. Not even on the chart. So, okay, so how much of this disinformation and false beliefs that, that many of us have had in the past and still many hold, hold true to this with the low fat thing and that, you know, the, 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 the USDA food pyramid of old with, you know, grains kind of in high priority there. Was this perpetuated by agricultural, you know, corporations or by big pharma? Like, where did we get the idea that fat was bad for you in the first place? And that you were supposed to eat whole grains as like part of a healthy diet. I mean, was, is this some sort of conspiracy or is it just like, oh, oops? Or was there a profit motive at the very beginning of that misinformation? Look, it was all those things. It was just nice people blundering and thinking that the cholesterol story led to this idea you need to reduce cholesterol and fat. And if you reduce that, that caloric source, fat... You'd replace it with something, and it was thought that whole grains were the most benign. And so, and now industry had a hand in that. They had a big hand in crafting the U.S. Dietary Guidelines for Americans and the USDA uh, My Plate my, uh, Food Pyramid, etc. And so, there was a combination of things. Big food figured out that a big uh, um, a source of revenue had been tossed into their lap, and that's why we had the proliferation of breakfast cereals, brand cereals a whole grain bread, and the other dozens or hundreds of other kinds of grain-based products. And you know what? The guidelines worked. That is, it encouraged Americans, now the world, to make their diet grain-based. 70% of all human calories on this planet now come from grains. Wow. Even though grains were never a part of the human diet until relatively recently. <laughs> right, right. I mean, this is with the whole paleo movement. People are looking, well, how did we evolve? Like, what does a natural hunter-gatherer person pre-agriculture eat, essentially? And there's very little grains and maybe wild rice, a couple other random things, but we're not having fields of wheat and then harvesting that until agriculture came along, right? Right. 
But what caught my attention, Luke, was not just the drop in small LDL particles and those kinds of effects. I was looking for and, and started seeing, by the way, a marked regression of coronary disease, atherosclerosis. My procedural practice went from six, eight, ten procedures a day to zero oh very quickly. So it was bad business for you. It sounds <laughs> like a bad business model to find, you know, an alternative healing mechanism or dare we use the word cure for your patients. I mean, did you effectively put yourself out of business? Actually, I had a very big, a vigorous practice because people really wanted to hear more about this, but okay. I didn't get paid by uh, procedures. You know, you can't build a $40 million cardiovascular wing on your hospital with healthy people. Right. And that's the dilemma, of course, of healthcare, that they right. want sick people. They like sick people. And that's why my colleagues are not in the business of health. They're in the business of the billing revenues for healthcare right. insiders. But what caught my attention, Luke, was this. I, I did this diet for purposes of, of coronary plaque control, right. right? Heart scan scores. They, they come back. They say, well, you didn't tell me I'd lose 57 pounds. You didn't tell me I'd lose six inches off my waist. Wow. Why did my rheumatoid arthritis go away? Why did my plantar fasciitis I've had for 10 years that was uh, this made, my, made walking miserable, why did it go away within a, a week? Why am I no longer diabetic? Why, did, why didn't you tell me I had to stop my insulin and all my, my three <laughs> diabetes drugs? Why did my migraine headaches that plagued me every day without fail for 27 years disappear within the first week? Why did my acid reflux disappear? Why is my IBS, irritable syndrome, uh, diarrhea, uh, why did it go away in just five days? And look, it was this outpouring of experiences. At first, I said, I have no idea why. But wow. then it became clear there was something going on here. And that's when I started to ask, well, why? Why would removing the food, that's the, the, the thing that we all celebrated, right? Every, every, the American Heart Association, American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, uh, American Diabetes Association, USDA, everybody agrees grains should be the centerpiece of your diet. And when we remove it, we see, holy crap. All this unbelievable stuff. That's when I tried to understand what in the world I was witnessing. At what point when you started to see these results from your patients having these dietary changes and restrictions, did you start to apply it yourself? Were you still at home eating donuts and, you know, <laughs> and loaves of whole wheat bread? And then you saw your patients like, oh shit, I'm going to quit this stuff? Or had you already kind of like, at what point did it start to affect your personal lifestyle? I, I did it before I did it with patients. Okay. And I saw these kinds of effects. And you started to feel better and, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't put two and two together. Okay. You know, it sometimes takes a big cinder block on my head to catch on. And right. I made myself a type 2 diabetic 25 years ago. No shit. When I was uh, a vegetarian, I was on faculty at Case Western in Cleveland, and I thought I was pretty smart about health and nutrition. I used yeah. to jog five to eight miles a day along the Chagrin River. And I just happened to have a blood sugar check. It was 161. My triglycerides were 350. My HDL, the good, the good, was 27, which is a high-risk marker. And I, I thought, how can this be? I'm, I'm vegetarian. I cut my fat. I cut my cholesterol. I jog five miles a day. How? <laughs> well, I'm no, I'm not, I no longer have any of those things. I have a perfect blood sugar, not diabetic. I no drugs, by the way. But I, I've, I've, I've learned by, by stumbling, Luke. I, mm. I made mistakes. But I, I managed to learn something from it. It didn't always happen overnight, but it happened over time. But it became clear that what was called wheat today is something very different. Not to say old wheat is benign, 
But modern wheat is much more harmful. Yeah, don't you refer to it as Franken wheat? <laughs> well, yes. Is that your current term that you coined? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because look, it's very different. It right. stands about 18 inches tall. It's short and stocky. The stalk is very thick. Uh, the seeds are very large. The seed head is very long. And, and farmers love it because it yielded four, six, eight times more per acre. If you're a struggling farmer and you're getting eightfold more per acre yield on your crops, even if you have to spray, spray tons of glyphosate all over it. Oh, we're going to get uh, into that too. <laughs> uh, the, the farmers embraced it. And now the 99% of all wheat in the world, not just the US, not just North America, in the world is now the what's called the high-yield semi-dwarf strains of wheat, what I call franken-wheat or franken-grains. Right, franken-grains. So I've, I've heard from people that are somewhat aware of you know the, the issues that could come about as a result of eating grains and specifically wheat and gluten, that, that they'll say, oh man, I went to France or I went to Italy on vacation and I was eating tons of pasta and bread over there and I was fine because they have this older strain or, you know, a different type of wheat that's not that, you know, 18 inch tall, whatever you described one. I mean, are there still places in the world where there's wheat that's safer, that's not been hybridized and isn't this franken wheat or franken grains? One thing I stress to people is to, we got to be clear in our logic. If something is less bad for you, it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. <laughs> right. I guess what I'm looking for is, can you get away with it? Not that it's optimal, but you know, it's like, oh my God, I love like a French baguette. And I'm like, I'll travel anywhere in the world to be able to get away with eating that shit and not, you know, get the shits from eating it. So are there still, you know, quote unquote, ancient grains that are, you know, at least a little less harmful or would you just rule them all out no matter? It's kind of like low tar cigarettes. Ah, In other words. God, I was afraid you were going to say that. <laughs> so yes, there are uh, traditional strains like emmer and spelt that you can get in parts of Italy, Faro, uh, Southern France, etc. But they still provoke such things as high blood sugars, autoimmune diseases, gut leak, that's the first step in generating inflammation and uh, autoimmune diseases, provoke formation of small LDL particles, but some of them just aren't quite as vigorous and, and promoting and provoking perceived symptoms like diarrhea or abdominal right. pain or joint pain. Right. But it does not mean that they're benign. And one of the problems we have with trying to point our fingers at wheat is that there's, there are literally thousands of strains Mm -hmm. So when I say these things, you have to generalize to some degree, but despite all that, there is no single strain that is actually good for you. They're all harmful to various degrees and not a little bit harmful, but very harmful. It is one of the biggest mistakes humans made when we traded accessibility of calories to survive. That's how humans first incorporated the seeds of grass. That's what grains are, by right. the way. They're seeds of grasses. Right. We traded accessibility for survival and didn't know that a year, five years, 10 years later, your teeth rot, you get osteoporosis and knee arthritis, you get migraine headaches, heart disease, dementia, diabetes, obesity. We didn't know that. Now it's become, with the exaggerated changes introduced by agribusiness and genetics research, where they amplified, for agricultural reasons, a lot of the problems in wheat, then it became obvious to people like me, where we now remove it and miraculous things happen. And look, I should point out, this happens for free. This is not an expensive detox program, $10,000. Right, right. This is something you do at home, the comfort of your living room, and you do it at no cost. I think in addition to just growing up in the 
1970s in California. And my parents were actually both pretty health-minded. They made me take vitamins when I was a kid and not eat junk food and package, you know, sugary treats and all that kind of stuff. I had to go to friends' houses to eat the good, you know, the good bad food. But I grew up, you know, subsisting, I would say mostly on flour. I mean, that's probably like my main food group, flour and cheese and dairy. You know, it's like those opiate, really tasty, addictive foods. And then as I started to become more health conscious in my mid-20s because I had all of these, you know, addictions and alcoholism and health problems and I was just a wreck. So I did a reset and I started doing all these detoxes and cleanses and fasts and saunas and all this stuff is like the mid-90s. And then I learned about factory farm meat and how toxic that was because of the antibiotics and hormones and the cruelty to the animals. So I decided to become a vegetarian. And when I became a vegetarian, my health, I mean, I guess it improved from where I was because I was so toxic, but I had all of these, you described them, the diarrhea, alternating between diarrhea, sorry, listeners to have to put you through this visual, but you know, just going back and forth from diarrhea to uh, constipation, having to take all kinds of laxative all the time, heartburn for 15 years. I think I made it like 10 years as a vegetarian, but now looking back, I'm like, oh my God, I had... If you wanted to build an inflammatory, gut-destroying diet, it was mine. Soy, dairy, uh, you know, every kind of legume, every kind of grain, because I was not eating meat or eggs or fish or anything, you know? And so I was so devastated. And then as I started to learn about high fat and that, and then eventually about the dangers of eating gluten and grains and things like that, my health just year over year just gets better and better and better the more I'm able to to edge those out. But let's say someone right now still wants to practice a vegetarian or vegan diet. Like what the hell do you eat if you're not eating grains? <laughs> I know you're not like a huge, as I understand, I'm not a huge proponent of a vegan or plant-based diet per se. But if someone's like really locked into that idea, what could they, is there any way around that? What do they eat? Uh, you just have to make do with what remains without grains, of course. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you know, it's very difficult if you also reject legumes because legumes are a big calorie and fiber and protein source. Right. So you just have to make use of what, what's left. Nuts, seeds, flax, chia, vegetables, of course. Uh, I, I don't promote that. And I try not to antagonize the, that community too much now uh, because I, I have real objections to it because one, I, it made me diabetic and I actually practiced for a number of years and asked people to become vegetarian and I saw their health deteriorate. I saw, for instance, blood sugar go sky high, triglycerides go way up. They ate just same things I had. Blood pressure goes up, small LDL particles skyrocket. And what are the, what, what's bad about those small LDL particles? What do they do? So if I consume, let's say, the amylopectin A of grains, that's what provokes the formation of small LDL. It's not the gliadin, okay. it's not the gluten, it's, not, it's, it's the amylopectin A, very unique carbohydrate. Okay. Or sugar does the same thing. If I consume those things, it causes via a kind of a complicated liver pathway formation of these small LDL particles. If I eat fat, it causes large LDL particles. The small LDL particles are unique. Large LDL persists maybe 24 hours in the bloodstream after fat consumption. Small LDL particles last five days, sometimes often longer, seven days or longer. So they persist longer. They stick around. They're also much more adherent to the components of artery walls. Okay. And once they get in, they're smaller. They can get <laughs> this is through. the opposite of what we're taught. We're taught if you eat fat, like specifically animal fat, that it coag coagulates or whatever that word is 
in your arteries and then it clogs them and no blood can get through and you have a heart attack and you die. Artery clogging saturate. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah. I've heard it but all. <laughs> what's always been weird to me, and I, you know, I'm sorry for interrupting, but it just, you, you say so many dense, you know, nuggets of information that I have to unpack some. To me, like if you, um, let's say you cook with some ghee or you've rendered some lard or something like that and you run it under hot water or even warm water, like the temperature of your body in the sink, it melts and it just goes right down the sink. So if I'm eating saturated fats, like I'm eating bacon fat, lard, uh, ghee, something like that, and it's on the shelf or coconut oil, on the shelf, it's, it's hard. But once I cook it or put it in my body, you can even put any fat, you know, that's good fat in your mouth and it melts. So that would indicate to me that it's flowing freely throughout my body and not getting stuck in the arteries. I mean, this is a very cartoon-like visual I'm creating, but with that does that make sense to you? Yeah, you know, my colleagues still cultivate that idea, artery clogging, saturated fats and all that not. That's not how the body works. It's not as if the science hasn't been sorted out. It has. Doesn't your body melt the fat inside it is what I'm saying? Well, all fat, all dietary fat are triglycerides. Okay. Just like the stuff you measure on a cholesterol panel, the triglyceride value. Okay. So if I, let's say I have a, 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 diet, a diet that's mixed in fats and carbohydrates, okay? Uh, if, I, if I track, let's say every 15 minutes or something, my blood triglycerides, there will be a modest rise from the absorption and metabolism of fat. That's, that's normal. But then it comes back down. What was only recognized in the last decade or so is if you keep on measuring, there's a huge rise about six to eight hours later. That's from carbohydrates. So the effect of carbohydrates on these triglycerides is far more potent, but it takes a long time. The reason for the delay is because it's a, it's a liver, it's, it's called de novo lipogenesis. It's a process that the liver engages in, it converts sugars like amylopectin A of grains into triglyceride, uh, triglycerides and triglyceride-containing particles. Now, that big rise, that big flood of particles interacts with other particles in the bloodstream. That's the means by which your body, by which your body converts large LDL particles to small, long-lived, very adherent, very inflammatory, very oxidation-prone. Gotcha. A lot of this data, by the way, comes from UC Berkeley, Hopkins. This is not my speculation. It's not some wild, airy-fairy thing I made up. <laughs> the science right. is clear, but it never percolates to the surface because the treatment, look, the treatment for explosive degrees of small LDL is without cost. There's no fancy drug. There's no injection for several thousand dollars a month. It's something you do on your own for free. Coronary disease, coronary health, delivered for virtually no cost. That's great for you and me, but it doesn't sell in big pharma. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Or keep the doctors in business. I mean, this is the thing I'm always, you know, I would say I'm sort of anti-big pharma and our current allopathic Western medicine industry in general. But then coming from a, you know, devil's advocate point of view, each doctor is sort of an entrepreneur and you have your practice and you got to make money, you got to pay the bills. And so... That's why you got, you know, an eight minute window with each patient and they come in and da, 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 da. And it's just this like puppy mill style medicine. And I, you know, I feel from, for the doctors from that perspective and it, it isn't a great business model to just be like, oh, hey, psst, let me tell you a secret. If you just cut grains, you don't need to come see me anymore. You know, this is an interesting thing. It's like, you want to have integrity and tell the truth to your patients, but to do that would sort of, in a sense, put you out of business. You know? I, I couldn't agree more. It's the, a weird, the, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a, absolutely. It's a, there's two sides to it. If I was a doctor, I'm like, shit, I need to pay the bills. I got this overhead. I'm in this medical building. You know, you've got your suites, your secretary, you know, your whole staff. 
you you got to pay the bills. So it's like, in a sense, doctors sort of have to buy into the whole system or or not. Like what happened to you when you started speaking out about this? Were you ostracized and condemned by the industry? And did it hurt your business in terms of your practice? I got glazed eyes and indifference. Oh, okay. Because not my attacks. colleagues, some attacks, but for the most part, you think my colleagues have their finger on the pulse of the, of the health conversation, but they don't. They're more interested in how to increase their bypass surgery numbers by 18%. They're more interested in the newest stent or defibrillator. So the things we're talking about aren't even on their consciousness. They're not right. even on their radar. It's not even in the conversation. It's in not words. even it's in like, the hey, conversation. It's like, hey, did you hear about this new stent that was invented by Merck and da-da-da, and it's, it's, it works better than any of them when you're like, hey, hello, over here, you could just stop eating bread and not need a stent in the first place. Yep. So it's, you're kind of in another paradigm of reality in a sense. It's almost a parallel universe. Okay. Okay. But this is why I became kind of cynical and became convinced that the answer would never come from within the healthcare system. It's going to come from people like you and me and podcasts and social media. Because you know what? Even now, most of us who talk about these kinds of things that could be perceived as an anti-big pharma message have been barred from TV. Right. Because direct consumer drug ads, you now know, dominate advertising dollars on the net on the networks. And so they don't want to host any kind of conversation that could be potentially antagonistic to big pharma. Interesting. Do you, do you have a publicist right now that you work with? Mm -hmm. And do they have a hard time getting you on TV because your message is counterproductive to that of the, the advertising dollars? When my undoctored book came out, which was flagrantly anti-pharma, anti-healthcare, as opposed to the Wheat Belly series, mm -hmm. complete blackout. Wow. Complete, utter blackout. Wow. No return calls, nothing. <laughs> but but it, it can, I didn't, that took me by surprise, but it confirmed yeah. to me, think about this. Big Pharma has an effect, purchased big media. They control now the message of big media. Well, another thing you'll see is there's virtually no reporting, negative reporting on healthcare anymore. Healthcare politics, yes, mm -hmm. but there's nobody talking, for instance, about why does it cost $84,000 for one vial of a hepatitis C drug of 120, 120 tablets. So your doctor gives you a prescription, you fill that one vial, $84,000. No one talks about that in the media, but it should, it should have triggered outrage. Right. And repeated reporting. Right. That's just one example. But there are literally thousands of similar examples like that of how big pharma is raping the U.S. economy. And I say U.S. because it's more so in the U.S. than elsewhere. We pay so much more, typically 100% higher than what they pay in Canada, Sweden, U.K., France, etc. Wow. Wow. That's profound. So I, I really mean that when I say yeah. big pharma is, is financially raping uh, Americans. They're raping the rest of the world too, right. but they're doing it worse in the U.S. Yet there's, look, there's almost no reporting of this in the media because yeah, I don't they're hear too scared. <laughs> they're too scared to lose right. all those fancy commercials, right. which now is uh, approaching $6 billion a year in commercials. And, gets, and by the way, who pays for those commercials? We do because it causes the price of drugs to be raised. Right. Wow. God, that's fascinating. That sounds awfully cynical, but I, I, I will point this out to you, but I, I'm, I'm still hopeful because you know, there'd be no podcast like yours 20 years ago. 
This is the wave of the future. It's people congregating, collaborating on their own because the doctors are not doing their job. If it doesn't yield a big couple thousand dollar uh, uh, procedure fee, they're not interested. So, and big pharma, of course, no answer is going to come from big pharma or medical device industry or the hospital lobby or the healthcare insurers. Healthcare, here's their little secret healthcare insurers love high healthcare costs because if they play a percentage basis game, uh, a percentage of a bigger number is bigger profit. And so it's the public against this monstrosity, monolithic revenue grabbing system. So how do we fight that? Last I checked, I don't have $25 billion in my marketing budget. So it means you and I have to collaborate. We all have to collaborate, educate each other. And the wonderful thing is these kinds of tools, social media, sharing of ideas is now getting very powerful. And that's why I wrote the Undoctored book because I wanted people to know, you know what? You're a lot smarter than you think you are. In fact, when you sit down with your doctor and talk about something like nutrition or supplements, the dumbest one in the room is the doctor by a long stretch. <laughs> That's he, so doesn't, he doesn't know anything. <laughs> Talk about a blank stare, man. I'll, <laughs> I'll ask my doctor about, you know, just whatever, any kind of new discovery or technology or dietary, you know, choices or something like that. And they literally are just like, huh, what are you talking about? <laughs> but, you know, here's the thing. It's back to that thing. A doctor is, is an entrepreneur and they're spending their time going to medical conferences and studying the system that they're in. They're not really incentivized to like, ooh, I wonder what the, the new supplement is that, you know, can cure something or dietary changes. I mean, it's not really most of their area of personal interest or expertise because it's just, it's outside of their, their matrix, you know? So I, I mean, I try not to be critical or judgmental of, cause I'm sure many are, are well-meaning and some might even listen to this show, but it is at the same time, things are very dark because as you said, of social media and YouTube and podcasts and things like that, we can have conversations. And I ran into people at this conference, probably 10 people since yesterday, they're like, oh my God, I've learned so much for your podcast. It changed my life. I'm doing this, this, and this different now. And it's amazing. And I helped my auntie and my daughter. And you know, it's just like this ripple effect because no one can tell. <laughs> my advertisers are supplement companies and organic sheets and you know, a life insurance company that you know, bases their fees on um, how healthy you are and the lifestyle. I mean, there's so many good things happening at once. So I can say whatever I want because the people that pay for my show, uh, are supportive of all of my ideas. So it's, it's really cool right now. It's like the best of times and the worst of times in a sense. That makes me hopeful. And you're right. I'm generalizing. There are wonderful naturopaths and chiropractors and integrative health and functional medicine practitioners. So I'm, I'm talking more about mainstream doctors and we could wait, I think 30 years, Luke, and maybe they finally get it. When you ask them about, say, the value of ashwagandha, they'll finally have something intelligent to say. Right. But I'm, I'm not willing to wait 30 years. And so I say, let's go around them. Yeah. Because, Me too. Me too. Uh, if you already know more than they do, why do we need the doctor? Yeah. You know, I always laugh when they say, talk to your doctor about whether you take the supplement. I mean, <laughs> why would you talk to your doctor? He doesn't know a thing about this. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really funny. You know, I actually uh, had a situation recently where the past couple of years I've been getting, I guess you'd call it vertigo. Like I just get sort of, I feel car sick all the time. So I, even, you know, on planes and in cars, definitely like a motion sickness. But then it started to persist just as I'm walking around living my life. So I, you know, I go to my general practitioner. He sends me, he goes, I don't know. It could be this, could be that. First stop is he sends me to the fanciest ear, nose and throat clinic in downtown LA, world famous. People come from all over the world to see this group of doctors. They are just the be all end all of ENT. I go in there, they run a few tests to me and he goes, okay, we're going to check these tests. And I come back, he didn't have any answers. I come back the second time and he said, okay, I think I know what it is. 
do you drink coffee? I said, yeah, I have you know, one cup of nice, clean, organic coffee per day. I said, yeah, I think it's probably the caffeine that's uh, causing you to feel dizzy. I said, really? That? How many years did you go to school? That's all you got? So I did a little more research. Ended up going and doing something. I did uh, two things. I did a sacrocranial uh, alignment therapy a couple of times. That may have helped. I'm not sure. It helped that one day I went. I had it. And then after the treatment, I didn't have it. And then I've been doing something called network spinal analysis, which is this offshoot of chiropractic invented by a guy named uh, Donnie Epstein, which I recently interviewed. And you go in there, they do all this crazy stuff to you. It seems like hocus pocus. And I've yet, I haven't had it uh, since I've been going. I have not had a dizzy thing once. It just totally went away. Try to explain that to the ENT guy. I could go back and see him. Hey, check it out. I went to do this this thing called NSA and they just barely like poke you on a massage table a couple of times and ask you to breathe in these strange ways. And then it went away. I mean, you can't explain that. And they're not interested in hearing the answer because they'd have to shut down and send everyone to do network spinal analysis, you know? You know, like, if we could just persuade the medical system to re-embrace this idea that your job is not to build the hospital, it's not to derive revenues for your uh, group, it's not to get a bigger end of quarter bonus because you drove more MRIs and neurology consults and heart catheterization. It's, the mission is health, is to help people be healthy. If we could just get that message through, but I fear it won't happen. How do you tell a $2 million a year ophthalmologist who profits 1000 2000 bucks with every useless injection he makes for macular degeneration, that cocaine of ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching with each injection, he wants to do 20 a day, he can't stop. I, yeah. I, by the way, I've had this conversation with my colleagues who have admitted that. Right. They can't stop because right. it's so profitable. They love that money. And how are they going to pay for the Lamborghini anyway? Yeah. So, but that, so the profit motive and the indifference to health, the failure to actually be concerned about people's health, not health care, mm-hmm. has corrupted health care. So, I, I've, to be honest, I've rejected this notion that the answers will come from health care and the answers will come from you and me and people who talk and Facebook conversations, collaborative efforts online and books and these kinds of things. And people, to my great delight, people are getting smarter. I mean, you're not a scientist or a physician, but you're damn smart about health. Yeah. And you have a health podcast. This yeah. is, this, to me, this is fabulous. It's representative of the, of the emerging wave of empowerment in health and information. Yeah. And if we had most doctors listen to your podcast, they'd have no idea. Think about that. They'd have no idea what you're talking about even though they are presumed experts in health. Another one of my bugaboos about (laughs) doctors is why carry on this charade of being an expert in health and even poo-pooing. If you came to your doctor and said, I want to eliminate grains because I think it provokes formation of oxidation prone, small LDL particles by lipoprotein analysis. He says, "Uh, don't waste my time. Get the hell out of here. Uh, Here's a prescription for Lipitor. Wow. So in other words... They they maintain this charade, this conceit that they are the experts in health and you don't know anything, which of course is completely untrue now. You do know a lot. What they should say is, well, explain to me what you mean. Where'd you get that? I should explore to see if there's any value in this. Right. <laughs> right. One of the turning points for me, Loke, was yeah. I had a woman who had 12 years of ulcerative colitis and she had hemorrhagic ulcerative colitis. She's bleeding, diarrhea, she's on in one of these very costly injectable biological drugs and two other drugs. And she's having no relief whatsoever. They're going to take her colonel. She's a young woman, 38. 
They're going to put an ileostomy bin, you know, a bag that she wears the rest God, of her life. Man. And she's got to poop in the bag, which is disfiguring. It's, it's, it's awful. It's, yeah. I mean, if you have to have it, you have to. But I told her, why don't you try this? Elimination of wheat and grains. And she says, no, why, why would I? They biopsied me twice for celiac disease. I don't have it. They ran the blood tests. I don't have celiac disease. Mm-hmm. I understand. They're going to take your colon out. You've got nothing to lose. Why don't you do it? She does. She comes back a few weeks later. She said within five days, all the bleeding and diarrhea and pain stopped. She stopped one medicine. She felt so good. She stopped two medicines. She felt so good. She stopped three medicines. She lost 38 pounds, even though I never even told her she'd lose weight. But she goes back to her gastroenterologist and she says, look at me. I feel better than I have and look better than I have in 20 years. I am cured of ulcerative colitis. You didn't have to take my, my colon out. He says, eh. It's a coincidence. You go back, go back to what you're doing. Wow. That to me encapsulated all that's wrong with my colleagues in healthcare. What he should have said, of course, is, well, what? Really? Tell me exactly what you did. I need to understand. <laughs> I know, did man. I overlook something? Oh, that's so annoying. Can I learn a lesson from this? God damn it. Maybe I need right? to see more of this. Maybe right. I, but no. And I, I've seen this happen over and over. Uh, just do what you're doing. I don't really give a damn what it is you're doing. That cured your diabetes, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, or whatever. And, and so this, this, this interest in health has been gone. So I don't, I don't have the patience to wait 30 years yeah. for them to change. God, nor do I. So I think that's what we are doing. We're taking back the reins and helping people be healthy at virtually very little cost with just some benign guidance and information and conversation. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I've been into tonic herbs and medicinal mushrooms, not just as supplements, but as a way of life for many years. And one of my favorite purveyors of such products is Longevity Power. These guys make some of the most potent bulk herbal extracts on the planet. And I take them literally every day, which is why I want to share them with you. So over at Longevity Power, a couple of my favorite products are as follows. By far, my number one favorite maca product on the planet is their maca bliss. And this is way beyond raw maca, gelatinized, roasted. This is a true dual extract of black maca, which is the most potent on the planet. This is really good for building your resilience to stress, athletic performance. I use it before I work out. It's really good for your libido restores your adrenals. It's just very supportive of power and health. And so Maca Bliss is one of my favorites. And I also love the Epic Rishi. This is by far the most potent concentrated Rishi product on the planet. I use this a lot in the evenings to just slow down and relax. Rishi is very calming to the nervous system. And it's also really supportive of your immune system. The third one I want to share with you is Goji Joy. Now, I love goji berries. They're part of the Chinese medicine wheelhouse. They have a long history of use for all types of health benefits. However, they're really high in carbs and sugar, which I try to avoid. So the Goji Joy is a really potent extract, which is just absolutely delicious and has all the health benefits without the sugar. So I'm just a massive fan of Longevity Powers products. I use them all the time. In fact, I just reminded myself I need to place an order because I'm out right now. And that is a sad state of affairs. I got to have my maca, my reishi, and the goji just hands down on the daily. So if you want to check out Longevity Power and take your health to the next level, go to longevitypower.com, use the code the lifestylist and save 5%. That's longevitypower.com. Code is the lifestylist for 5%. Check it out. 
And now, back to the interview. So let me ask you this. In your own personal diet, are you 100% gluten-free? Like, don't touch anything on the menu with a trace of gluten. Well, I, I like to call it grain-free. Grain-free, okay. Yeah, let, let me tell you why. Okay. So seeds of grasses, grains, mm -hmm. share, they're very promiscuous. They, they, they genetically combine a lot. So some of the genes in wheat are shared by sorghum and millet and rice and oats. And so they're very, very interconnected genetically. And so that's why, for instance, there's a very toxic protein in wheat called wheat germaglutinin. And it's called a glutenin because if it contacts blood, it causes clotting or agglutination of red blood cells. So wheat germaglutin is in wheat, but the same exact gene and protein is in barley and rye and rice. Wow. Is it even in uh, wild rice? It's even in wild rice. Wow. Now, it's, there's not a whole lot of it because only less than 1% of the proteins uh, of, the, of the weight of rice is protein. So mm -hmm. a lot less than the 14 to 18% of the proteins in, in wheat, say. Right. But it's a minor component, but it's still there. And it's a very potent toxin, mm. both in the bowel as well as uh, the little bit that gets into your bloodstream. So I, I, I like to say we're grain-free. Right. The carbohydrate of grains, wheat and otherwise, is amylopectin A. And I, I point that out because the amylopectin A is uniquely susceptible to the enzyme amylase in your saliva and stomach. And it, it, it's digested very rapidly and your blood sugar spikes very quickly and very high. That's why two slices of whole wheat bread raise your blood sugar higher than six teaspoons of table sugar. Are you serious? Yeah. Say that again, please. <laughs> two slices of whole wheat bread raises blood sugar higher than six teaspoons of table sugar. Okay, Now wow. amplify that with pretzels and bagels and birthday cake and healthy whole grains and other forms. And right. you see what's happening is sky high blood sugars all the right. time. But that amylopectin A is shared among all grains. Wow. So, and the other problem here is, uh, if we call it gluten-free, we have this other problem of the gluten-free industry, which, by the way, is larger than the grain industry. So they, well, they Are first, you serious? Yeah, they first came out and attacked me viciously. They hired PR firms, dig up dirt on me, all this crazy stuff. Did they find anything? You know, besides talk, talk divorces. Talk to the ex-wives. Yeah, 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 right. That's about it. That's, there's nothing else. My life is not that interesting. That's good. That's good. But, but um, then they realized, oh, we'll play both sides here. We can be the gluten-free industry, too. Because gluten-free foods, processed foods, are made with cornstarch, rice flour, tapioca starch, potato flour. It's not all grains, but a lot of grains. Mm -hmm. And they promoted them like mad. And that it's a booming industry, even though the, the carbohydrates of gluten-free foods are... There's very few things worse from a blood sugar standpoint <laughs> than amylopectin yeah. A. Gluten-free foods. You just bummed <laughs> out so many listeners, dude. People yeah. that are like, yep, yep, I'm gluten-free, gluten-free. I go to Whole Foods. I just go straight for the gluten-free section. I'm good to go. So not so much. Let huh? me tell you a quick story. All right. So I, I was uh, asked by a big shot in the, in the, the gluten-free. I can't tell you who it was because I had to okay. sign an NDA. Okay. And he says, I, I, Bill, I want your ideas. We are one of the biggest manufacturers of gluten-free foods. And we're not stupid. I play golf with the CEO of, you know, this company or that company, big multinational food corporation. He says, and we know we were in the, we, we, we've had 18% growth in the past year. We're doing it unbelievably well. But listen, we're not stupid. We know gluten-free is shit. He said that to me. 
He says, help us craft foods are less harmful. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Less harmful? Why not make them healthy and benign? He says, no, you don't understand. That's not our business. Our business is high volume, razor thin margins. So we got to use cheap commodity products, ingredients. Mm. Well, we, I couldn't help him because I don't know how you make healthy products for dirt, you know, for for cheap. Right. But that was that was that was the insider. Look, that was the wow. big wheel insider of the gluten free industry. We know we make crap products, and yet the, the the public has somehow heard my message and other messages as you know, eat gluten free foods. Mm-hmm. All you mm-hmm. got to do is check a blood sugar or even better, check your lipoproteins for small LDL or check an insulin after eating those things. You'll see sky high causes wow. diabetes, de- contributes to dementia, cancer, heart disease, cataracts, hypertension, <laughs> you name it. So once again, the food, big food uh, played this game with us. So once again, and if you ask your doctor, he won't know. If you say, Doc, how about a gluten-free diet? Well, you don't have celiac disease. The, yeah. the, 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 the veneer of, of dietary sophistication among my colleagues is so paper thin that it's just not worth it. That got me for a while because I, I, I sensed that when I was on and off gluten and, and grains uh, that I would have these symptoms that came and went. And so I thought, God, I must have celiac because my dad does. My dad's very sensitive to wheat. Gluten. And so I got tested for C like no, you're you're clean, you're home free. I was like, great. Okay, so I'll go back to eating it and I get the same symptoms, you know? So okay, there's a couple questions in there. First one is there's so much there's like so many takeaways I want to make sure people get because now I've learned in two years what people want to know after I do an interview. They'll comment on Facebook, why didn't you ask them this thing? What about this? What about this? I'm like, I gotta go back and get another interview. So I'll see if we can do it in one. When I go to that gluten-free section or I go to my local, you know, really high quality organic health food bakery or restaurant or something, then they have a gluten-free product. Some of them seem to be made with like almond flour and coconut flour and things that are not grains, but they're still bread-like or cracker-like. So I guess the question is like, what are a couple of the acceptable things that a gluten-free product could be made out of that aren't inflammatory and aren't bad for you? And then what are the the players that you really want to watch out for. You mentioned a couple of them quickly in like a gluten-free product. Yeah. So as you point out, the problem isn't gluten-free. It's what food manufacturers have painted as gluten-free. So I've even seen water labeled gluten-free or or an apple or a pickle. Come on, of course. Yeah. Or gluten-free pickles. Well, yeah, of course. That's fine. (laughs) That's true (laughs) that there is a big marketing push for like the the gluten-free thing. I'll see that on really... Yeah, like I have some um, fermented beet, like sauerkraut in my... uh, uh, hotel room here. And I was looking at, you know, I'm like, is it organic? Because I look at the labels, man. I don't buy anything unless I read all the ingredients and it says gluten-free on there. I'm like, well, duh. You know? It's like, right. what beets would have wheat on them, you know? So the, the, the telltale signs to look for would be any of the four main gluten-free ingredients, which is about 98, 99% of all gluten-free products. It'd be cornstarch, okay. rice flour, potato flour, potato starch, and tapioca starch or tapioca flour. Okay. Those I've seen on all the gluten-free yep. labels for the yeah. most part. If it was, as you point out, what if it was, uh, let's just say cookies or bread that was almond flour, coconut flour, maybe ground golden flaxseed and stevia. Something like, uh-huh. That's okay. Okay. But so as, as you point out, you got to read the labels. Right. Because you just can't count on industry to point out that this gluten-free product is safe and that one is just horrible. Right. Okay. Cool. That's good to know. So it seems like 
some of the products that typically would fall under the safe category of gluten-free would be ones that are strictly paleo. Because the paleo ones, you know, I'm not saying blanket, but in general, they're trying to avoid all grains. So those would be the ones that are made of more your almond flour and things like that because they're aware of the issue with grains. So in terms of labeling, we probably want to like at least at first glance on the shelf, get one that says paleo-friendly, gluten-free, and then read the ingredients and see if it has the cornstarch, potato starch, and all that other swag stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be a move in the right direction. Okay. I got some differences with what the modern I'm interpretation just, of paleo. I'm, you know, but- I'm, I'm speaking to myself and people like me. They're like, but God, I want a cookie or some crackers every now and then. How can I like, quote unquote, get away with it? without totally eliminating anything that's carby and you know satisfies that craving that so many of us have grown accustomed to having as part of our diet. I know personally like it's hard for me to not eat grain like things. It's just like I get hungry for that stuff. Well, I, I think several issues in there, Luke. One is uh you can buy manufactured products now for convenience. Mm-hmm. Uh there's there's not a lot, but there's a growing list of smart manufacturers who are making. They're more costly because they're not using cheap commoditized uh, and subsidized ingredients. You know, almond flour is, is kind of costly compared. Say it's about a uh, 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 tenfold more expensive than wheat flour. But you can find these things, or you can make them. You know, I've had you know holidays and entertaining friends. Oh yeah, you friends. have a cookbook, don't you? Cook, there's two cookbooks. There's recipes oh, so and two. other books. So you have wheat, wheat belly cookbooks, right? Uh-huh. So in there, do you have recipes that would satisfy that sort of oh, yeah, sure. yeah. cracker, cookie, cake craving? You name it. You can do it. Okay. Th- there are a few exceptions. There's some things you can't make. But for the most part, you can have a delicious pizza. You can have cheesecake, cookies, muffins, scones, donuts. Uh, you will have to make them or find those selected manufacturers who are smart right. enough not to use the gluten-free crap. Right. But you can do... And the other thing to be aware of is... Um, and you know this, because uh, you told me before the show, not limiting fat. Yeah. Always take in lots of things you mentioned. Coconut oil, ghee. I would say lard, tallow. Yeah, I love lard, actually. It's delicious. I use it to cook all the time. It's really Bacon amazing. Fat. Yeah. Buy it's funny, and that's cuts. the stuff when you're a kid, you know? It's like, remember that thing someone would be eating like a bacon cheeseburger? You say, oh, there's a heart attack on a plate or something. It's like, we've all been trained to like avoid those really thick, gnarly fats. I mean, of course, you want your, your lard to come from a pastured animal right. that hasn't been eating a bunch of right. GMO, you know, crap and stuff like that. So the right. sourcing is important. Yeah. You know, and that's funny you mentioned that though, because... I started to become aware that gluten and grains were inflammatory and were a problem as I phased out of the vegetarian years. And then I started drinking like a buttered coffee every morning with grass-fed butter. And it was so weird. I was so satiated. I guess I was in ketosis probably, but I didn't know it. I didn't even know that was a thing at the time. I was just like, well, this is weird. I don't want to eat. I have my co- you know, my butter coffee in the morning and uh, I don't want to eat until three o'clock. And then when I do, I don't, I'm not craving bread. Like I want some a salad or some meat or fish or something. And it actually made it really easy to avoid sugar and grains, the more fat that I ate. And I found that to be true. It's like, you might even be craving carbs and then you eat an avocado and you're like, oh, <laughs> I don't want any carbs now. You know what I'm saying? Yes. You know, let me go back to a point you made earlier. And that is the addictive aspect of grains. Oh, good. Okay. So, so it, it it all drills down to the gliadin protein. Ah, this uh, is why I, I folded the other day and ate that goddamn cronut. <laughs> okay, carry on. <laughs> so, so gliadin is a protein in wheat. It's shared by barley and rye. There's a similar protein in corn called zein. Uh, another protein in oats called avenin. 
So there's these, these are called prolimin proteins. That's what the agricultural scientists call it. These proteins and grains. But the worst is in modern strains of wheat. Upon digestion, they yield opioid peptides, opiate-like uh, peptides, small proteins, and they drive addiction. They drive addictive relationships with pie and cookies. And that's why you see people at the breakfast buffet, for instance, knocking each other over to get at the baked goods sometimes, or we have those kinds right. of insatiable cravings. But here's some, this is just my suspicion though, but I've seen it play out many times. I think it also drives other forms of addiction. I don't understand exactly why, but I've seen that happen. And I've also seen people finally gain control of their other forms of addiction by going wheat and grain free. Interesting. I'd like to have more formal analysis of that, but I've seen it happen so many times, I'm convinced there is a real connection. This is fascinating to me because I'm someone who in the past struggled with addiction, including acute opiate addiction. And it was not from my doctor. <laughs> uh, so I'm 21 years free of that. Thank God. Glory to be, glory to God for that one. Uh, literally, it's a miracle. But in addiction recovery, and you may or may not be familiar with this, for people like me that are just full-blown addicts, alcoholics, it's necessary to abstain from all drugs, even ones you don't necessarily like. So for example, I never liked crystal meth, amphetamine, but every once in a while I would do it just because it was better than nothing because I felt so uncomfortable in my skin. It's like, wow, you got a drug? Even a drug I hate was better than being sober. That's how I used to be. But I would do that drug that I don't even like, and then, then I would drink. And then if I had a drink, then I would smoke some weed. And if I smoke some weed and so on and so on and so on. And I find myself in any given day ingesting eight different street drugs or something, right? And so in order for me to finally break free of that, I finally had to surrender to the idea, which is common in recovery circles, that you can't do anything that's mind altering or there's this cascade or they call it a phenomenon of craving. You know, They call it that within um, the 12 step groups and it's in, it's in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, this term, the phenomenon of craving. And it's interesting as it relates to what you're saying, because I've experienced that same phenomenon of craving with certain foods. So I have some sugar and then something in my brain lights up and now I'm like, well, I could eat some, you know, some bread and then I eat the bread and I want more sugar and dessert. And I start just becoming this monster for more of those foods that based on my, you know, my wisdom of what works for my body and, and not, I really don't want to do it, but it's almost like my own willpower becomes useless against that craving. So it's very interesting what you're saying, that phenomenon of craving within someone who has, you know, the addictive propensities for drugs and alcohol and things like that could bleed over into the grains and sugars and those other opiate producing kind of addictive foods. Well, so has the advice via the USDA food pyramid, my plate, US dietary guidelines for Americans, etc., has that inadvertently created a nation of addiction? Mm. This, that's a pretty strong wow. statement or question. Wow. But I, th I think it has. I think that'll play out over time that it's not the oh. only cause, but oh it's my a God, big this contributor. Is crazy. This is crazy because that leads into the pharmaceutical, even like not only uh, you know medical drugs, but then into the drugs, pharmaceutical drugs that can be used recreationally too. And the opioid crisis and all that. It's like at the head of that pyramid, is you know vested interest in keeping people sick and reliant on those medications. You know, I don't know if you've heard the Dude, news. In the that's last, heavy. That's dark. In the last couple of years, is a very successful weight loss drug, and it has two components: an antidepressant and an opiate blocker. Wow. Yeah. Naltrexone. 
Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Why would nice people need an opiate-blocking drug who don't take heroin or other opiates? Why would it work? Holy crap. Wow. Yeah, Big Pharma is very clever. They find ways to infiltrate into your life at large cost and ways that look like they're helping you. Dude, we just gave the audience a giant red pill right now. Boom. Welcome to the Red (laughs) Pill Show. We should change the name of the podcast. The Red Pill Show with Luke Story. Wow, that's a really interesting correlation. So... One of my questions was, and I don't even have to answer it now, but I was like, this is the one bill that I was really hoping to have an answer for is I've met like um, bakers at farmer's markets and stuff who sell like artisan uh, sourdough bread and things like that. And they have all these signs that say it's safe for celiac people and this and that, because when we ferment the bread, it eats up the bad gluten or whatever. Is there, you know, our, and and also, I don't know if it's like... uh, Placebo, but I feel like I get less screwed up if I eat like a you know really expensive French fermented like a sourdough bread than I do if I just eat you know a cronut from the freaking Seven Eleven or you know like really bad just white flour. Is there is there any hierarchy there, or is it all eventually going to get you? Yeah, we're back to that old question of is less bad right, good? Okay, okay. So <laughs> the process of fermentation does indeed reduce some of the amylopectin a little bit, okay. reduces some of the phytate con- phytates bind minerals, and you poop it out. That's why people who consume grains are miserably iron deficient, zinc deficient, magnesium deficient, calcium deficient. Wow. It reduces content of wheat germ gluten a little bit. It reduces some of the gliden a little bit. In other words, it's reduced or disabled mm-hmm. some, but not even close to being completely disabled. There's okay. no way a, a fermentation process can take something destructive of human health with literally dozens of human toxins and make them all benign. That doesn't... Okay. Doesn't, that, so that's kind <laughs> okay, of... Okay. <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's, there goes that fantasy too. Wow, I shouldn't have done this interview, man. This is really a buzzkill to my... <laughs> I have my little things. I think I can find a way around and get away with my little hacks, you know? Uh, but that's good. That's good. It's going to help me... It's going to help me to, um, you know, have a bit more discernment and more discipline and, and also help me to help other people because there's a lot of misconceptions around around this stuff. So when it comes to eating, let's just say eating bread or grains or gluten, what actually happens in your in your body, you know, in terms of leaky gut and how does that relate to inflammation? Because I really want to give people some hardcore reality, not just based on the results that you've had with patients. But when I eat a big old, like I went to a French bakery about a month ago and I ate a giant baguette just to the head. <laughs> like, but I ate the entire thing. What's happening inside my body when that, when that type of... Uh, you know, craving gets um, gets passed by my my willpower. Well, wheat and grains are really a collection of highly inflammatory components. Okay. So there's a list of things. Okay. So Dr. Fasano at Hopkins worked this out. He had very elaborate, very detailed studies where he proved that the gliadin protein separates the barriers between intestinal cells. Uh, okay. The, the actual base, we finally had the scientific basis for this idea of gut leak Mm -hmm. or intestinal leak. So it physically separates the tight junctions of the barrier between cells and lets things through, such as what's called lipopolysaccharide, which is a a bacterial breakdown product that gets in your bloodstream that's highly inflammatory. Even in teensy-weensy quantities, it can be fatal. That's how powerful this, this toxin is. So the gliadin protein initiates the process of gut leak. Gliadin breaks down. I, I should point out, Luke, that one of the problems, one of the reasons why grains and seeds of grass are so destructive 
is because humans are not equipped to eat grass. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, whether it's the stalk or the blade of the leaf or the uh, stem or the husk or the seed grains, humans just don't have the enzymes. Right, right, right. So if you were to turn a, you know, a cow loose in a, you know, a pasture of green growing wheat and they just scarfed it all, would they be fine because their digestive system is, is built to break that down? They can eat it, but they do develop some toxic effects also. Uh, okay. Uh, because now they're eating the whole plant and then wheat doesn't really grow in places where wild cattle tend to eat. So. Okay. Okay, cool. But, <laughs> I got you. But I see where you're going with this, that it's, it's, we're just actually not made to digest that. Just like when they take a cow and feed it soybeans or corn or something like exactly. that, its digestive exactly. system was not designed by creation to eat that as a food. Right. Okay. So there's a protein, for instance, called wheat germagglutinin. And it, it, when humans ingest it, it's completely impervious to human digestion. It goes in intact and it comes out intact, but in its course through the gastrointestinal tract, it's extremely toxic. It's directly toxic to the intestinal wall. It blocks the action of hormones such as cholecystokine. Cholecystokine is a hormone that your gastrointestinal tract uh, produces to tell your pancreas when the food is present produce pancreatic enzyme, release pancreatic enzyme. It tells your bile, your, your gallbladder to spit out the stored bile. Mm. So cholecystokine or CCK, we say, is necessary for digestion. Wheat germagglutin blocks it very powerfully. And so you can't release enough pancreatic enzymes. Your bile uh, uh, stagnates. We say bile stasis. That leads to gallstones. Uh, and this protein then finally makes it out in the toilet intact. It's completely untouched. Wow. A little bit gets into your bloodstream too. Lots of people have antibodies to wheat germagglutinin from entering to the bloodstream. And when wheat germagglutinin gains entry to the bloodstream, it's extremely inflammatory. So those are just a couple of the mechanisms, but put the entry of wheat germagglutinin with the increased intestinal leak of gliadin uh, and gliadin-derived opioid peptides. Right. So it's opening the gateway for that stuff to get into your bloodstream. And so essentially the intestinal wall is, you could think of it as sort of as a fabric then, right? And that fabric in leaky gut starts to become sort of unwound so it becomes permeable. And then things that you're eating, toxins and everything, are now able to get into the bloodstream where normally they would have to be processed and... Exactly. Right? Exactly. Is that the, the basic idea yeah. behind that? There's more. Okay. The <laughs> it, gets worse. it gets worse. Okay. No, this is good. The uh, this is so good for me personally, dude, because I, you know, I'm, I mostly avoid gluten, but lately, I don't know. I felt like, ah, I've been off it for so many years. I'm so healthy now. I can quote unquote get away with it. So this is a great personal lesson for me to like get back on, uh, back on track. So carry on. The amylopectin A we talked about, that's that very digestible carbohydrate. Right. So you eat anything with amylopectin A, meaning wheat or grains and blood sugar goes sky high. And uh, insulin has to go up high also to accommodate that high blood sugar. So repetitive high blood sugar, high insulin grows visceral fat, fat in the tummy, surround the organs. I just held my stomach. <laughs> I have a striped shirt on too, which makes it worse. Like, okay, carry on. So visceral fat's very inflammatory. Uh, if you actually looked at it under a microscope, you'd see it's filled with uh, white blood cells, inflammatory white blood. It's like pus. Uh, and it also uh, uh, releases numerous inflammatory proteins. So the growth of visceral fat that you get from consuming foods rich in amylopectin A are very inflammatory also. So that's just a partial list of the things that are wow. so, 
So as you, as you can imagine, eating grains is essentially an invitation to huge inflammation. But right. the, good, the good news is, and this is why people sometimes think I'm full of baloney, is you go grain-free. And ladies will say, for instance, I, I, I lost 10 pounds in two weeks. People say, that's impossible. You can't lose 10 pounds of fat. In two. Well, they're not losing fat. About half of it is fat. The other half is inflammatory edema, inflammatory water. Oh, so inflammation recedes and you'll see it. By the way, Luke, you'll, you'll see it on people's faces. A woman will post her picture on the We Billy Facebook page, for instance. Here's me day zero. Here's me day 14. We're not talking about years or months. We're talking about two weeks. Their face has shrunk. Their edema of puffiness around the eyes has receded. Their eyes are bigger. Dimensions, the, the sideways dimensions, left and right of the cheek has shrunken. Their face is no longer red with seborrhea. And you'll see vivid illustration of just how powerful inflammation recedes when you no longer eat this thing that causes inflammation. Ladies will say, look at, they'll 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 post pictures of their feet and shoes. And they're, before, they're all puffy and that sticks out around the sandals. (laughs) And then afterwards, it's all, it's like youthful feet again. top on a foot. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But that's inflammation. It's not weight loss per se. See, that's so interesting because I've experienced that with myself where just, you know, wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and some days I'm like, wow, shit, I I look like I lost weight. Like my stomach's flatter. I don't, you know, my my love handles seem to have diminished. I go, God, I guess this workout's paying off. And then two days later, I'm like, what the hell? I looks like I gained 10 pounds. And I know that I can't, you know, you don't burn, you don't lose and gain fat that quickly, but it's like some days it's noticeable. So that's the inflammation and that water retention then, huh? Absolutely. And even just flying in a plane or doing something that's just inflammatory as a lifestyle practice will kind of do that. I'll feel, I don't know, puffier, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But it also means, uh, uh, and you've had this, when you go back, when you've been grain-free for a while and you go back, whether it's inadvertent or intentional, you get edema, weight gain, uh, joint pain, skin rashes, migraine headaches, depression. My sister gets suicidal thoughts. Wow. I mean, it can be very profound. So I, I, I tell people, you know, once you go grain-free, please don't go back. And but unfortunately, a lot of people learn that lesson the hard way <laughs> with 48 hours of, of diarrhea and abdominal pain right. and very dark emotions. Right. So it's, it's just not worth it because as you, as you know, we can, we can make a beautiful pizza or cheesecake just by altering the ingredients. Right. So it's not really a life of deprivation, Luke. It's a, it's a life of wonderful food. It's right. just a different list of choices. Have you, with your interpersonal relationships, and you obviously are, you know, following what some would consider pretty strict dietary restrictions, uh, based on you know the general population, everyone's eating tons of grains every day. Is, has it been hard for you to hang out with, you know, friends, family, wives, kids? I mean, you know, do people get annoyed because when you go out and eat, you're like the guy that's like, well, "All right, let me see the menu. No grains, no grains." I mean. Has it created any conflict with your relationships or going to family holidays or anything like that? There used to be a time when people thought it was nuts, but it's become, to my great delight, it's become much more mainstream now. Right. And so my son does it. My daughter does it. Uh, you know, people around me have been doing it or they at least, if, if I go to a neighbor get together, for instance, they, they know what it is I do and <laughs> right, right. a lot of them do it themselves. Oh, that's cool. And so they'll make a bunch of dishes. One of the embarrassing things is I have some neighbors who are very good in the kitchen and they've taken my recipes and they're far better than mine. Wow. <laughs> they've made wow. them better than that. Where do you live? 
in the in Wisconsin. In, oh, okay, in Milwaukee. Wisconsin. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm from New Jersey, but I live in Milwaukee. But... Uh, on your on your dietary program, do you allow yourself to eat good cheese every now and then, or is that out too? You know, dairy, as you know, is a whole new can of worms. Yeah, we have the casein beta A one issue of lactose. We have estrogen issues. I have been entertaining this conversation about making yogurt because yogurt is, of course, a fermented product and it tends to denature or reduce or break down a lot of the harmful proteins. It doesn't eliminate them mm-hmm. like sourdough mm-hmm. fermentation. Right, right. It just reduces them and right. it seems less offensive. And that's okay. been a really cool thing where we're using very specific probiotic organisms and amplifying their count through yogurt. That's a whole other conversation, of course. Uh-huh. But Dairy does have its issues. Right. And it's mostly circling around the casein beta A1 and to a lesser degree, the hormonal content of dairy. I'm, I'm in the dairy state, right? So, I know, that's why yeah, I asked. I'm yeah. like, you can probably get some really good Amish cheese, you know? What about, uh, what about raw dairy? I'm, I'm thinking from based on what I've seen that that would be a lot less problematic in general. You know, I, I think in a perfect world, we all eat raw dairy because mm-hmm. it's richer in microorganisms, healthy microorganisms, right. and probably has greater nutrient value. It still has the casein beta A1, so right. it still has and I'm that. I'm going to geek out a little bit on the, on the dairy thing, and I know this is kind of off topic or maybe even your level of expertise, but you seem knowledgeable here too. What about the A, was it the A1 and the A2 cow? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, you know, as you know, if you're in Australia, New Zealand, you can buy A2 dairy. Right. And that is clearly less immunogenic. It's less likely to trigger the immune response that leads to type 1 diabetes in kids. It's less likely to cause sudden infant death syndrome in wow. infants who consume or mothers who feed, who consume casein beta A1 and then breastfeed their children. So there's a lot less problems. And essentially, we're just talking about different breeds of cattle, right? Yes. That they yeah. just, you know, they're like, they have a different gene profile, essentially. And so their milk has a different chemical composition. Mm-hmm. And so you have A1 or A2 milk, and the A2 is the better, less inflammatory of that milk. Yeah. Okay. And you may have heard that there are a handful of North American farmers who are converting over to A2. It's taking a long time because one, you don't want to kill your A1 cows. Right. And it's very costly. They have to have genetic typing of their cows. They have to select ones for breeding. So it's a long, slow process. But I think you're going to see in the coming decade, not tomorrow, in the coming decade, we'll have, just like they have in Australia, A2 milk, A2 cheese. You know, I've seen it uh, at a health food store in LA called Lassen's. I'll see. I mean, I don't buy it because I don't really drink milk. It's still pasteurized and stuff, so I'm not interested. But I have seen a few A2 products, which is kind of promising, you know, for those that that want to go there. That's great. What about uh, sheep's milk and goat's milk? Is that less problematic with the casein and the inflammatory properties? Yeah, it's the casein beta A2, just as it is in human mother's milk. Okay. So it's much less inflammatory. I mean, dairy has its issues. There's no question about it. I'm not trying to absolve dairy of all its problems. Sure. It's got, you know, uh, bovine growth hormone. It's got other hormones. After all, it's supposed to nourish a growing calf. Yeah. I've heard that argument from vegans. They're like, oh, it, you know, it makes tumors grow and it gives you cancer because it's, it's made to make a calf like blow up really fast because of the hormones in it. These are is that overstating that a bit? There's some truth in it, but I think they're referring to the semi-fictional book called The China Study. <laughs> the semi-fictional <laughs> book. Dude, every time I interview some... Because I interview people from all walks of life. Like, I'm devil's advocate. I'm like, you're a, you've got a good argument for a vegan diet. I'll have you on the show. We'll talk about it. I'm sure there's some value there. But 
all of the people on that side of the argument, the China study, the China study. And then all the paleo people are like, that's a, that's actually a comic book. It's not real. What's the deal with the China study from your perspective? There's a lot of issues, but, and I don't know what Campbell's issue is the author, um, to his great credit, he did publish his raw data, but what he says in the raw data is very different from what he says in the popular book. Oh. And the data are, uh, uh, it's also hazardous when you try to extrapolate too much from mouse data and try to make us big mice. So for instance, a high fat diet, a high fat chow in a mouse makes it diabetic and fat. But that's not what happens in humans. There are other issues in there, the composition of chow, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it's very dangerous to blanket accept uh, crude mouse studies and say that is the basis of an entire dietary style. And it's also uh, kind of absurd when no human, no wild living human population has ever lived a vegetarian or vegan lifestyle. Never. Humans have an anatomy adapted to, I hate to say this, I wish it wasn't true. Humans are vicious, carnivorous creatures. And we are, that's why we, you know, we, we, we are built for group hunting. That's why we have the vocal apparatus for speech. We have the capacity oh, articulation so like, of words. Hey, the deer's over there behind the tree. Or, we have to be able to evolve to, or to communicate Luke, that. the woolly mammoth is over there. You take your axe, come from behind, cut its left knee, I'll come from in front, and I'll poke it in the, in the snout with my spear, and you guys get right. vocal apparatus for speech, speech center, forebrain for planning, weapons and tool-making capacities. So humans, unlike any other species, are experts or were experts at group hunting to take down large m- mammals. And we became very good at so much so wow. anthropologists believe a lot of the large uh, species that have died out over the last 100,000 years is because we were so successful at group hunting. Wow. But we are crafted for group hunting. When we start to embrace hunting and then finally fire, depending on who you ask, about 400,000 years ago, uh, digestive efficiency increased dramatically. Brain size increased. The colon shortened dramatically. The colon is mostly for digestion of plant matter. Our colon shrunk. You know, a, a bovine like a cow has a very large, long spiral colon. We just have a couple of turns an hour. So we have a short colon and a very long small intestine for efficient digestion of fats and proteins. We don't have the tools for carnivory built in like uh, uh, like uh, canine teeth and sharp claws, um, but we have the capacity, the very unique capacity no other species has of group hunting, including speech. And so this notion that we should, I, 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 I have this blog post, I call it, what should a vegetarian wear? And it makes the point that if this was, a, say, 60,000 years ago and your clan migrated into a cold climate, say, Northern Europe or North America, and cold, let's say it's 10 degrees out, Fahrenheit. What do you, if you can't kill animals, what do you wear? Well, you don't, you die. You die of of you and your clan, your family die from freezing. So you kill an animal to take its skins and you wear it as shoes, you wear it as a, as a, on top, you wear it as pants, you kill animals for food. People said, how about a cotton? Well, no, no, (laughs) there was no cotton in in the ancient world. That's a very elaborate process to do that. Maybe wool, but even that's kind of complicated. You wore the skins of animals. So humans and animals have coexisted and humans are vicious carnivores. And that's how the, and I'm sorry, it makes people mad. And I was a vegetarian, as I told you, 25 years ago, made me diabetic. I learned my lessons the hard way, hard way. But if we look through the history of humans, 
humans consumed animals. I wish that wasn't true because we have now a world population of 7 billion people thanks to the cheap, easy, but health-impairing calories of grains. Wow. So we've, we've created this bubble. What do we do? So there's a population bubble largely due to the fact that grains have become so cheap and are just a commodity food that even impoverished countries are able to get a hold of and to keep procreating, right? Absolutely. That's interesting. And then it's also the thing that's creating a disease epidemic and a, a medical worldwide medical crisis, essentially. That is so funny. Human beings are so weird. You know, the stuff we do, it's like you look back on just like when, you know, when I was a kid, growing up smoked on the airplane. I was flying at five years old, 1975. Everyone next to me would be smoking and there was a smoking section and a non-smoking section. Now, even a short time after we look at that, like, oh, right. Like the smoke's not going to like get to the rest of the people and all that stuff. And the ads of the fifties of, you know, doctors saying smoking was good for you. It's like, Funny to be in a time where you see the smoking of now, but you're 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 woke, as we say. You've red pilled, and you're like, okay, you guys, come on, everyone else, catch up. Like we have an epidemic on our hands here. And just that issue with smoking, Luke, making an excellent point. It took about forty years to really take root, and so I think the same thing will happen here. Right, as the world wakens up to realize that type two diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, etc., are largely diseases of grain consumption. That people will smarten up, but then we're left with this problem i don't have an uh, answer for what do we do then when uh, we have large populations all reject grains and eat real food instead so that's another problem we'll have right. to tackle over time where are we going to get the food that's going to replace grains if everyone gets on board with abandoning them i think it means growing food in your own backyard and doing things back the old just like grandma used to do having right. your own large vegetable garden and things like that and right. not letting the fruit on trees rot Right. And making use of the things we have, eating the organs of animals like we used to, like we we're supposed to. Right. So I, I think there'll be a backpedaling to the ways things used to yeah. be. And there kind of is, you know, in the in the microcosm of the ancestral food movement and the paleo people, I think that's sort of happening in a sense, you know. Um, in terms of the, you know, the vegan diet too, um, it's interesting what you said that it's actually never been done in history, not only successfully, but there's just no a record of any vegan humans on the planet anywhere. Is that true? That's true. Yeah. Now, the Indian population has embraced vegan vegetarianism uh, for a couple of thousand years. But are they healthy? That's but what I always not, wonder. Exactly. <laughs> they're not healthy. Because that's, when I was a vegetarian, I'm like, I went to India, I meditate, I love the gurus, I'm really into that whole culture and, you know, all of that stuff, consciousness. And I thought, well, they respect and veneer, uh, uh, revere, sorry, the cow. They've, they don't veneer cows, maybe after they die. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's like, yeah, but they're eating ghee, right? There's ghees like in every Indian dish almost. So I thought, okay, well, that's I'm going to do that. There's a culture that has persisted despite not eating flesh and organ meats and stuff like that. But then it occurred to me recently, I was like, you know what? I've been to India and I wouldn't say people look really healthy there. They're not exactly like if you go to the Scandinavian countries where there's these you know, long standing bloodlines of these Vikings and they're really fit and handsome and their bone structure and their eyes are straight and their teeth are straight. But in India, I wouldn't say that that's like, you know, the epicenter of health, is it? No, they, so there's tremendous problems with child uh, impaired growth and impaired learning because they're so deprived of nutrients like iron and B12 because there's no, there's no vegetarian source of B12. You have to get it from an animal source or take, you have to do this workaround called supplements. You have right. to take 
Now, I advocate supplements for my lifestyle also, but not to make up for deficiencies of lifestyle, to make up for deficiencies of modern life. And there's a difference. Right. But the uh, people in India have flagrant deficiencies and they have, take a look at them. And, this can, and I'm not trying to be nasty, but you'll see that they're sarcopenic. They've lost muscle mass. They have skinny arms and skinny legs. Uh, you'll see that sadly. That's what I mean. Like, I don't think of like, oh man, I want to be healthy and ripped like an Indian person. And if there's any people listening, I'm not trying to be disparaging. I mean, this is an observation and, you know, I, I have a hard time being politically correct because I just tell like, it is for better, or for worse. I love the Indian people. Okay. I've dated Indian women. I'm all down with it. But if you said, Luke, you know, what culture would you want to emulate? And if you wanted to be really ripped, that wouldn't be the first, you know, no. uh, race of people that I would want to, to follow after. They have a bigger problem with type 2 diabetes and weight gain than we have now. Okay. They're, as caloric deprivation is not so common, it's unmasking a lot of the problems. They have massive problems with type 2 diabetes, uh, autoimmune diseases, coronary disease, huge problem. Because they're eating a diet that causes those diseases and they have little skinny arms and legs from sarcopenia and they're B12 deficient, iron deficient. So they're kind of a laboratory wow. for the destructive effects of and, their lifestyle. And was that the case even before the, you know, the Western commodity food started infiltrating their food supply? It's gotten worse. There's no doubt okay. that modern... I've noticed that when you go to some third world countries like Brazil, Mexico, India, and you go to the grocery store, they have all the same shit we do just in a different language. It's all this GMO crazy stuff. And sadly, I think a lot of people in India are eating that diet now. But you're saying even before that, they still were not that healthy. No, but the problem has been amplified. No point. I okay. mean, U.S. has exported, sadly, uh, yeah. poor health. Yeah. Because uh, you see kids in India eating bags of Cheetos and stuff. Just like kids here <laughs> drinking Coca-Colas, you know? So interesting. Yeah. I and think soft drinks, very a good point too. We, we've exported soft drinks. That's yeah. a huge problem too. Right. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. I just always trip on the, you know, I want to look at like what the healthiest people in history have eaten. And because there's no trace of a record of maybe Atlantis or something where there's been vegans or vegetarians that have kicked ass and been healthy. So I don't have like a political agenda against it. And I support people doing whatever the hell they want to do. It's none of my business anyway. But just personally, I'm looking for like, answers. And there's an interesting thing too about, you mentioned the supplementation. So if an Indian culture is vegetarian and they're deficient in say B12 and they have to supplement for it, that would kind of just indicate that your body needs that and we've evolved to need B12. And if the only place to get it's from animals, then maybe we should be eating animals. That would be my unavoidable conclusion. Yeah. It's and likewise, like, you wouldn't need the supplement if it was in your diet. And the exactly. fact that you need the supplement, it means that the body needs it. And why does the body need it? Because the body's evolved to get it. Yeah. Right? Similarly for omega-3 fatty acids, you cannot get yeah. it from flaxseed or chia. That's linolenic acid. And the vegetarians and vegan community are opening, opening themselves up to dementia because lack of EPA and DHA is, is a dementia, very substantial dementia risk. Uh, so... Wow. Where can you get EPA and DHA? Well, either right. fish, shellfish, but if you're not coastal, you're worried about mercury exposure, brains of animals. But most modern people don't want to eat brains of animals, yeah. lost <laughs> even though our grandparents did. Right. So we're left with fish oil. But point being, you have to consume some animal product for an appropriate, healthy amount of EPA, DHA. Likewise, zinc. Zinc is only in animal products. You've got oh, to eat animal products. You can't get you it don't, from a kale smoothie? 
And if you don't get zinc, you get uh, immune system intolerance, uh, impairment. You're wow. more prone to infection, viral infections, bacterial infections. Z uh, iron deficiency is very common, very common in the vegetarian and vegan community because heme iron is the form of iron in, in animal products is very highly absorbed. Right. There is some non-heme iron in, in vegetables, but it's very poorly absorbed. So iron deficiency, iron deficiency in is very common in that community. And there are others. So that I, I would make the same point. If you have to take a handful of supplements to compensate for your diet, there's something wrong with your diet. So in my programs, I use fish oil because people don't want to eat brains. Mm -hmm. I use iodine because people don't want to eat the thyroid glands of animals. So we have workarounds for modern, diet, uh, for modern life, not for vitamin D. There's no deficiency of vitamin D in, in my lifestyle, but there's a deficiency of vitamin D because modern people work indoors. They wear clothes. People over 40 don't get enough sun and have lost a lot of the capacity to activate vitamin D in the skin. So we use supplements to compensate for the deficiencies of life, not of the lifestyle. Right, right. Yeah, yeah to kind of um, to reverse the domesticated life that we live. Like this yes. morning, I spent the first hour of my day from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. in direct sunlight with my shirt off, had some shorts on, did my yoga, all my breathing, meditation. I'm grounded. Fabulous. Yeah, so I use as much as food and supplementation, I really use my environment and always I'm always aiming to get back to nature. And I get my testosterone, vitamin D, all that stuff checked and it's like through the roof all the time. Fabulous. Yeah, it's great. Great. So that's I get a lot of questions. Oh, I can't afford these, you know, these fancy supplements and all this biohacking tech. I'm like, okay, can you walk outside barefoot? Can you get sun on your mostly naked body without burning as often as possible? You know, some of the basic stuff, doing ice baths, cryo, all those things where we're sort of using some technology to mimic a more natural environment and to undo some of that domestication. That's excellent. Cool. Awesome. Well, dude, I think we've covered it. I really appreciate your knowledge and you're a really fun guy to interview. You're cool. Well, thank you, Luke. Yeah, yeah. I had a really good time talking fun. to you and, and thank you so much for sharing this information. And uh, Really uh, my pleasure. And I really mean it, Luke, when I say that what you're doing is the path to enlightening people because it ain't coming from ABC, NBC, and CBS anymore. It's <laughs> yeah, not, that's for sure. It's, it's, it's coming from these kinds of efforts. So that's why I, I want to support podcasts, shows like yours, because all you're interested in is getting answers and understanding. The old-fashioned notion of just truth and understanding. That's yeah. what we've got to do. Awesome, man. Oh, I almost forgot my last question. I got so excited. You've taught me an immense amount of information today, as you have our listeners as well. Who have been three teachers or teachings that you've followed that you might recommend our listeners go check out? So many people are bogged down this notion of uh, fat consumption that Gary Taubes and Nina Teicholz's books, uh, Good Calories, Bad Calories, it's, it's a little old now, but it's still very relevant. And Nina Teicholz's The Big Fat Lie, still very relevant. Uh, I read a lot of the anthropological papers and literature, and there is an excellent book. I believe it's called Dirt. I'm, I'm blanking the name, but it's written by a dirt scientist, but he has surprisingly some of the most brilliant insights into food, farming, agriculture, and how it's changed the landscape of, of the world. There's another excellent book by Richard Rangham, W-R-A-N-G-H-A-M. Uh, I think it's just called Fire. And he's a Harvard anthropologist. And he is wonderfully insightful in the human physiology of eating. Not, not from a medical standpoint, not from a healthcare standpoint, but just from the anthropological standpoint how humans hunted 
used fire, survived, and how our physiologists have adapted to that. Great, great wisdom. Cool. Thanks for those tips. Sure. And finally, where can people find you, website, social media, et cetera? Uh, I kind of break down my audience into two boxes, the Wheat Belly Conversations, the Wheat Belly blog, there's a Wheat Belly Facebook page, Wheat Belly books, of course. Uh, And then there's the newer Undoctored blog, Undoctored Inner Circle, which is a subscription website, but it's high touch and we have weekly meetings. We have these Zoom video meetings where we talk to people. The message is, is very similar to yours. It's trying to empower people. Let them know the doctor's not your friend for the most part. The hospital is not a good place. For God's sake, do not donate to a hospital. It's like donating to Walmart. It's a big business. <laughs> right. <laughs> but recognize, I think once people realize how much power they have in their hands over health, as you've been, you start to realize, I don't need the doctor for most of my health. In fact, I do a better job than he will ever do. Yeah, he's there if you, if you have a car crash or tumble down the stairs, acute and catastrophic, unexpected infection, they're there. But for health and chronic issues, the last place you want to go is the doctor's office. Awesome. Sage advice, my friend. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it, man. Sure thing. All right, cool. How fortunate is it for us fans of health, longevity, and well-being that we get these long-form, unedited, information-packed interviews? I mean, God, the things that you can learn in podcasts and on YouTube, and I've got to say as a host of a show, it's even more impactful because I get to actually sit down with these people and ask them literally any and every question that's ever come to mind as you can tell by some of my longer form interviews like this one with William Davis. I mean, these are things that I've wondered forever. And when I sit down and crack open my notes and start to formulate the conversation and get you know the points um, down that I wanna have answered, it's just so rewarding to be able to do that. And not only do I get the answers, but then I get to share them with people like you and then you share them with other people. Hopefully that's a little hint here. Please share the show with a friend or someone that you love, if not even mildly tolerate, so that everyone can find out uh, these different perspectives. You know, if you if you watch mainstream media, you're not going to hear a lot of this stuff. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're able to say things here that can't be said when you're beholden to advertisers and the structure really of shorter form media. And it's such an exciting time that we live in. And I feel like I'm just on the crest of this really fantastic wave, if not mini revolution. I mean, not even mini. It is a revolution of media that's happening right now. Thanks to the podcasters and uh, YouTube channel hosts that have come before me and really opened up the floodgates and gotten more um, traction with this type of format. And so I guess I'm just expressing my gratitude for Dr. William Davis and for you, the listener of this show. And uh, that said, check it out. I would love to invite you to follow me on Instagram. That is one of the main platforms that I use to stay in touch with the listeners. However, I'd like to make a request. And that is if you do follow me on Instagram and you want to interact and you're inspired by the work that I'm doing, it's less effective to send me a direct message because honestly, and I'm not trying to sound like Mr. Famous Guy at all, but I really can't keep up with the direct messages at this point, And a lot of them slip through the cracks. And not only that, if you ask a question there about something like this episode, like, hey, what did he say about this or that? I didn't catch it in the interview or where's the link for this or that? If it's a DM, uh, it's not as advantageous to the rest of the listeners of the show 
if I were just to answer that in a direct message. So if you want to ask questions and interact, please do so on Instagram in the comment section rather than direct message. Now, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but this is a private message and no one cares or it only pertains to me. Well, I really only have time and this is barely possible to uh, respond to comments on the post. And um, the reason that I prefer to do it there, if I can't even do it there, is so that everyone can benefit from the answer. Because oftentimes someone has a question about one thing or the other and they think that it's specific to them and that no one else has that same question. Uh, However, I know since I get thousands of messages uh, that that is not the case, that most people ask many of the same questions over and over again um, because a lot of people wonder the same things. And I might have the answer or at least uh, might be able to point you in the direction of someone who does have the answer if I don't in the form of a link or a book recommendation or another podcast or whatever it might be. So follow me on Instagram at Luke Story. Don't forget the EY. You're going to find a little black and white picture of me in a really funky hat. And uh, go ahead and follow me over there. And please feel free to leave comments and questions on any of the posts. I do a post for every single show that I put out. So if you have a question in regard to a specific episode like this one with William Davis, well then go on Instagram uh, because guess what? Right now as you're hearing this, the post is probably already up and leave a question or comment there on that particular post. So that's uh, the, uh, the Instagram shout out situation today. And then I'd also like to thank our sponsors, man, because let's face it, without sponsorship, this show is literally impossible. I can't afford this thing myself, guys. After two years, uh, there's a whole team of people that make this show and the website and the social media and all of that stuff possible. And uh, that literally would not happen if you did not purchase products from our amazing show sponsors. I would also like to say before I give you the links to them that I totally and absolutely and unequivocally refuse to have any advertisements on this show, which is what sponsors are. Unfortunately, yes, we have to run ads. Uh, unless I use those products or absolutely believe in those products. So you can have my vote of confidence. You will not be hearing a Diet Coke or a Marlboro or a Monsanto uh, related ad on the Lifestylist podcast. And I don't even like to think of them as ads. They're just really more great resources for you because these are great companies. And most of the time I get you guys a discount. That's kind of part of the deal. Somebody wants to run promos on the show. That's great. They're going to pay for that time on the show. And they're also going to give you guys a discount, which is very cool. So let's talk about Longevity Power. Longevitypower.com. You can use the code THELIFESTYLIST to save 5% off their amazing, super potent, super legit longevity enhancing, performance enhancing uh, tonic herbs and medicinal mushrooms. I love these guys. I've been using their stuff for years. The maca is great. The reishi is great. The goji berries are great. The hisha wu. They have um, an adaptogenic uh, herb blend that's called, uh, uh, shit, what's it called? Longevity in a bottle. And that's got just zillions of herbs and, and uh, mushrooms in it. It's just, it's insane. And their stuff is free of metals, yeast, molds, all that stuff. You got to be really careful when you're getting herbs and herbal extracts, especially the ones from China, because oftentimes they have industrial pollution. They've been radiated, which means they're, they're run through radiation to kill mold and yeast and things like that. But then you're eating the radiation. It's a nasty business. And there's a lot of dirty little secrets in the industry and longevity powers 
uh, founder Christian is a buddy of mine, Christian Bates, and uh, Homeboy is legit. I mean, I've met him on a number of occasions. I've grilled him about their whole process, where they get their stuff, and it passes all of my scrutinizing tests with um, with um, flying colors. So go to longevitypower.com, use the code the lifestylist, and save five percent. Next up, we've got a couple old standards, man. Not old as in bad, but just these guys have stood by me for a long, long time. First one being Organifi. Uh, I, you know, I oscillate between the different Organifi products. I usually use the green product in the morning and the gold product at night. Right now, I'd like to recommend that you try the gold and you can go to Organifi.com forward slash Luke. That's spelled with an I. If you use the code lifestylist at Organifi.com forward slash Luke, you will save 20%. That's a fat ass discount. So check out Organifi.gold, uh, <laughs> Organifi.gold. This is what happens at the end of the promos. Check out the Organifi Gold, but they also have a plant-based protein that's great. They have probiotics. They have the green powder. They have a red powder that's really cool. It's all the red fruits and vegetables that you're likely not eating enough of. So Organifi is awesome. And then our buddies over at Athletic Greens that make the most comprehensive green powder superfood blend on the planet. It's like eating, I don't know, 20 supplements in a tablespoon or something. It's absolutely insane. It's very portable. I like to travel with the Athletic Greens. Uh, it comes in a bag. And so and you're supposed to keep it refrigerated, but I can, I think I can make it on one flight and then I throw it in the refrigerator when I get where I'm going. You don't want it to oxidize. It's not like wet or anything. It's a dry powder, but it just main, maintains its potency if you keep it uh, refrigerated after you open it. But Athletic Greens is awesome and it beats packing around, you know, 50 bottles of supplements. So go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke and you got a bonus there too. If you use that URL, athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke, you're going to get 20 free travel packs valued at 99 bucks with your first purchase. So check out Athletic Greens as well. And lastly, if you're still hearing this outro, do you know what that means? That means you are a diehard ride or die fan and I appreciate you. But I want you to tune in this Friday for speed healing, turbocharged body work with rapid release. If you're someone who has body pain and you like massage and body work and really working on the physical aspect of your health, you're definitely going to want to check that one out. And then next Tuesday's show, our regular show, is Justin Mares from Kettle and Fire, great bone broth uh, company. And we're talking about ancestral health, bone broth, the ketogenic diet, all, all sorts of stuff. That's like an hour and a half kind of like life hacking, biohacking, um, paleo talk there with Justin. It's awesome. Thank you so much from the deepest pits of my heart for listening to my podcast. You are helping me to live my dream and I hope that I'm helping to support yours. I'll see you on the next show. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast was produced by podcastmasters.net.